0: Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away.
1: Uh, So this morning, uh, we are right back in the book of Psalms, and um, what a great place to be. I don't know about you, but when the summer hits, and especially when the dog days of summer hits, and the temperature begins to hit like 120, and as you walk through the parking lot, you feel your shoes kind of sticking to the ground, uh, don't you feel yourself kind of getting tired and start to wonder if maybe this is the judgment of God? Um, I think here we have the opportunity to realize uh, the coming judgment for some better than most from our perspective. Uh, We know that. But it's also, I believe, honestly, uh, a season in which many can get discouraged and tired. And and it's in that moment that you can start to uh, realize that, that that tiredness might not just be physical, but maybe spiritual. And spiritually, you start to sense that there is a kind of lethargy that's setting in. Uh, You're becoming tired, uh, you're becoming weak, and, and you're wondering to yourself, is there something going on with me spiritually as well? And maybe in that moment, you begin to realize that what you really need is for your heart to be revived, that you need energy not just physically, but spiritually for the Lord. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, but I love to think about revivals. And one of my great hopes as a pastor is that someday I would have the privilege of seeing God do a mighty work amongst us, one that I know will not last my whole lifetime, uh, but a significant movement where God comes by the power of his spirit and awakens a, a great number of people to the reality of who Jesus is and exalt his name. I was reading just this uh, last night uh, a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled Revival, and he was thinking through the nature of revival, and and it was a glorious book, and in in it, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the essence of revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down upon a number of people together, upon a whole church, upon a number of churches, a district, or perhaps the whole country. And wouldn't it be great to see God have a movement like that amongst us? You know, I, I, I've read about these kinds of movements. Uh, in fact, just last night as I read about some of these movements, I was tearing up to see and think about what God might do uh, as he uh, reminded me of the first great awakening with guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. In fact, we're told that through Jonathan Edwards' ministry and that great awakening, uh, they had over 50,000 new people join the church and become committed followers of Christ. And then later, in 1857 to 1859, over half a million people joined a church as a response of an awakening that God brought about amongst the people of God. Uh, We are closing more churches than we are opening today. And by God's grace, I pray that he would do a mighty work like this amongst us again. Don't you long for that? Well, we need this this morning, don't we? We need for God to revive and awaken His people again, so that when we even think or consider of revival, our hearts are excited to think about what God might do. Well, this morning we're back in the songs of uh, from the Shadow series in the Book of Psalms. Uh, If you are just joining us, uh, we've been taking note of how the Psalms have actually been broken up into three or to five books. And and they they really give a kind of progression or a story story storyline as you connect them together. So you'll notice that it begins with Davidic Psalms that talk about the historical King David. And then as we progress into book three, which we're going to be in today, you'll notice that we begin to see that God's people are trying to interact and engage with what it means to live in exile. But as we move out of three and into four and five, we begin to see God's people have a glimmer of hope for a new day. When God would bring a new David, a greater David, who would come and rescue his people and usher in all of those promises that they longed to see fulfilled by God. Now, in Psalm 85, it falls right in the center of that section shaped by exile. You'll remember in uh, Psalm 84, maybe, that you have an individual that's speaking, and they're speaking about a pilgrimage to Israel, The beauty of the courts of the Lord. Uh, They are visualizing Zion in all of its glory where God meets with his people. But here in Psalm 85, the very next one, we find the congregation is actually crying out to the God of salvation to revive and restore them. Now, it's really difficult to pinpoint the exact context that they're crying out from, but it's not difficult to relate to their experience. See, experientially... What you'll find in this text is the struggles of life have led them to question where they stand with God. Life is hard. They know they have sinned and that their experiences are in part due to sinning against God. They are living with the consequences of their sins. Maybe today some of you are here and you are sad, you are longing for more of God, and you are fearful that you are going to live forever with the consequences of past sins. You know there is forgiveness with God, but you know there are consequences and you are sensing, maybe questioning, is God ever going to bring relief? They felt this way. They knew they had sinned and that their experiences were in part due to their sinning against God and one another. And because of that, catch this, God carried that nation into exile. Exile in Babylon. A a, a horrific situation where they were separated from their home. They were there for 70 years for their sins, being reminded daily of the fact that they were not home because of their sin. And even though later, Haggai tells us that they have returned, they recognize that the former glory of God's presence amongst them has never seemed to return. It seems like they've never been able to get back to where they were with God. They were tired, and the great promises of God that they would be a great people living in peace with him taunted them. They thought maybe we will never again actually fulfill this thing that God has promised, that we will actually be able to be a blessing again to others and to the nations as God has promised us. And the issues of life that hit them caused them to cry out to God. And maybe you feel that way this morning. The issues of life have hit you in a way that as you are waiting on God, you are weary and you feel as though your heart is drifting from God and you need God himself to help you draw near to him. You need God to revive you this morning and to give you the fresh hope that you long for. Church, don't we long for God to awaken us? Well, that's exactly what the sons of Korah are asking for and for this congregation and this congregational song in Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And here's our big idea. If you're writing notes, it's a great place to to write something down. Uh, We're going to see that we need God to revive us until he restores us. We need God to revive us until he restores us. We see this first in verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3. We're going to fill this out. And there we're going to see that we need to remember God's past restoration. We need to remember God's past reviving and restoration now, verses 1 to 3, they're going to set the context for our psalm. And you'll notice here that all of the verbs are in the past, in the past tense, that communicates that they are remembering something that has happened, they're, they're remembering the way that God responded in the past. And, and you'll also notice that there's a little line there. Uh, the ESV didn't add this line in. It's actually part of the text. We didn't read it this morning, but, but let me, I'll, I'll be reading it here. It's a line that says, to the choirmaster, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And I think you're going to see that that's actually important. But but let's look again at Psalm 85. And I'm going to look at those first three verses. Here's what the word of the Lord says. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all of your wrath. And you turned from your hot anger. Now, the sons of Korah who wrote about 12-ish Psalms knew something about God restoring his people in the past. Now, Korah was a Levite who was with Moses and he tried to lead a rebellion against Moses along with his sons and others. And as a result, God ended up killing Korah and many of his sons in number 16. Now, just think about that judgment and the name Korah. And the fact that it would have been synonymous with the people who had rebelled against God. And then what we find is, is something that is really startling and encouraging if you're a rebel like me. We find in uh, David, nearly 400 years later, that he commissioned the sons of Korah to sing praises to God day and night before the most holy place. I mean, talk about an upturn, Right? We go from a people who are still, by the way, remembered as the sons of Korah, that rebel, but now we are leading the songs of the people of God in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I long for a kind of turn like that. And when Israel returned from exile in Babylon, these men kept the gates of the house of the Lord. Just think about this. A family bearing the name of a notorious rebel whom David restored to sing of the glory of God is leading this congregation and pleading with God for revival and restoration. I believe these are men who knew something about restoration. And they begin by reveling in remembering God forgiving their past iniquities. Now, iniquities, that's just a fancy word for sin guilt. He, he forgave it. Uh, Israel, also referred to sometimes as Jacob, Jacob was Israel, turned to idolatry as a nation. They turned to all kinds of egregious sins for which they were guilty. And it wasn't just idolatry, it was cult prostitution and even child sacrifice at times in the past. So when we're talking about guilt, we're not talking about, you know, these, these little sins. We're talking about egregious sins, big sins that God's people had committed against them. And God sent them into exile in Babylon Outside of the promised land where God dwelt with his people and his glory departed from them leaving them in a spiritual ghetto Their geography said something about them spiritually. They were far from the promised land and the promised giver Uh, They had lost that sense of the glory of God all around them They were far from God and that's the sin and the sins that God forgave in the past And notice that it also says that God forgave them, but also that he covered all their sins. Now, I think that sometimes uh, language in the Bible uh, is is good, but we might miss some of the significance. And covered might sound a little bit too gentle for you, kind of like the thing that you do for like your six-year-old when they go to bed with their blankie. You cover them like gently, maybe a foot sort of seeping out the, the back end or something like that. That's not the image of the way that God covers our sins though. In fact, John Calvin, speaking of this, says this. He says, when God says he covers sins, the meaning is that he buries them so that they come not in to judgment. They are buried, they they sense this people, God's displeasure for their sin in the present and that God is angry with them but they remember how God buried the sins of his people in the past with a God-sized shovel and they want him to pull it out again. So God, we need you to get rid of this this thing that has brought us into rebellion against you and and, and your anger upon us. We need you to remove it. We cannot remove it from ourselves, our own human hands, our own human efforts. It cannot remove the impediment that is between us and you. We need you to do something with our sin problem. You've done it before. I know that you can do it again. Now, I think that we learn a, a couple of things here. First, we need to remember how God has revived and restored his people in the past. This wasn't just good for Israel, this is good for us. We need to be reminded, reminded of how God has acted in the past. Now why is this important? Here's why this is important. We believe in a God who does not change. We believe in a God who has acted in the past, and because of the way he has acted in the past, and the fact that he does not change, we can trust that he is a God who will act in the same way in the future. He is a God that we can count on, and if we want to know what it is that we are counting on, then we need to rehearse what he has done before and trust that he can do it again. Now as we look here, what we find is, is that we need to be reminded as well about what God has done. Now, this is not a new thing or an old thing or something that Christians don't need as well. Paul says uh, to the Philippians that it's not trouble for him to tell them the same things, no trouble for him, and it's safe for them. And I believe that that is a beautiful line for every pastor where it is absolutely imperative that we say the same things over and over again. Why? It's not because we're slow, but it's because we have bad memories, right? And we need to be reminded that's not just you, that's pastors too. We need to be reminded of who God is and who we are in Christ. How do we remind ourselves of these things? Well, first is we we need to make sure that we are reading our Bibles and taking note of how God revives his people and how fickle our hearts can be. We need to be reminded of that. In fact, one thing that you will notice if you study the history of revival is that any time God has brought a reviving of his people... A spiritual uprising of many people to put faith in Christ and to actually pursue holiness with their whole lives and their full effort. It has always come alongside a revival of a careful, attentive listening to the Word of God. If we want to revive our hearts, we need to remember who God is. And if we want to know who God is, we need to look to His Word. Uh, I think we can also do other things. They're not as good as the Word of God and they'll turn us back to the Word of God. But I found that studying biographies... Biographies of past godly men and women and the way that God has been at work have been hugely encouraging in my life. Just last night, I was reading about Piper's 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy, specifically about Charles Spurgeon. It's a great book we've given away recently, but it's 21 biographies in one bound cover of godly men of the past. And I read about Charles Spurgeon, and I was reading about his ministry and the suffering that went along with a revival that broke out in that church that went from 400 people to 20,000 people in a matter of years of people crying out to the Lord, raising up orphanages, sending out pastors and missionaries, all to the glory of God. God did something unique there. And as I began to read about what God was doing, I began to weep over how God could use this man who is broken and flawed, to awaken a church to the glories of Christ and ask that God would give you that kind of heart. Oh, that God would awaken us. Or what about Jonathan Edwards, Religious Affections, a great book, a man who went through a great awakening. And you can read there and find out about what are the signs and conditions of what it looks like to have a God-orchestrated revival because only God causes true revival, right? We can't set up a tent and make that happen. God's got to bring it. And so if we want a God-ordained revival, not something that man's trying to create, we needed God to do it on God's terms. And there, Jonathan Edwards helpfully goes through how we can understand what it looks like to see a true awakening of God. I Also, uh, last night, uh, my family's away, so I had a lot of time to reading. I'm alone a lot. And so I got to read, uh, again, as I said before, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on revival. And here's one of the things that I learned. I just wanted to evidence this to show how it's, it's, it's his testimony of what he experienced in revival in England, right? Um, but, but here, as he's talking about um, his different experiences of the revival and his studies of revival, it looks so much like what God is doing in Psalm 85. Uh, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Revival, he says this. When God brings revival, the Holy Spirit enlightens the minds of God's people not only to see things clearly, but to feel their power in two ways. He says, one is they become aware, first and foremost, of the glory and holiness of God that leads to all reverence and a holy fear. That's one. Holiness of God becomes very big when God's people become awakened. And second... This leads inevitably to a deep and terrible sense of sin and an awful feeling of guilt. Now let me ask you this morning, if we want revival to break out, what do we really need? Do we need our circumstances to change or do we need our hearts to change? Catch this, some of, this, some of us this morning have a lot of head knowledge of God's holiness we know much of the holiness of God we could even tell you about people's uh, different understandings of what the word holiness means and we could trace down the etymological roots of holiness and we can even debate with the best of them about how we should be holy but we are yet at the same time far from sensing the power of the holiness of God is that you this morning That you, you need to sense more of the power of the holiness of God rather than merely being able to articulate what it's like. And some don't like to think of God's holiness at all. And maybe that's you this morning and you have made and are making sinful decisions. There's a decision right now that you are making something to do with money or relationships, the time that you spend on the things that are passing away. And as you're making that decision, that decision, you know in your heart that you don't really sense the reality of a holy God. And we need nothing short of the Holy Spirit to revive us so that we make godly decisions that show evidence of godly life that points to a reviving of the people of God. If we really have a revival breakout amongst us, you know what the number one thing that we're going to be pursuing in all of life is? Not our desires first and foremost, but the glory of God. When it comes to a decision, it's not, I wonder what God would let me get by with so I can be happy like not obeying him. The question would become, in what way, with all the opportunities that I have before me, can I most exalt the name of Jesus Christ? Now notice that here, remembering God's character is the God of salvation moves them from past remembrance into a present prayer for revival. And you see that in verses four to seven. Uh, you can look there with me again. And, and here in verses four to seven, what we see is a pray, a prayer for revival that rejoices in the God of their salvation. They want a revival that, that moves to the end of them rejoicing in the God of salvation. And we see that in Psalm Eighty-five verses four to seven. Here's what it says. There he says, "'Will you be angry with us forever? "'We prolong your anger to all generations. "'Will you not revive us again, "'that your people may rejoice in you? "'Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, "'and grant us your salvation.'" Now here, there's a huge assumption, again, about the character of God, that he has not changed in, in the past, that he does not change, that we can study the way that he's acted in the past and trust that that same God is our God. But notice here that they remember who God was, who God is, and who God will be. And catch this, this psalm is talking about living under the consequences of sin against God. So this is a specific situation that they have envisioned. It's not just a general I'm going through suffering. So he's not talking about suffering in general or saying that if you are suffering today, it is a consequence of your sin. So just a pastoral aside quickly, we know that not all suffering comes directly as a result of your sin. You'll remember in John chapter 9, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, they say, Jesus, whose sin is is this man's blindness a result of his or his parents? And what does Jesus say in response? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In fact, faithfully serving Christ, we know can actually bring suffering upon you. Sometimes things can get harder whenever you become a Christian. First Peter 4.13 says that we even share in Christ's sufferings, which is a daunting thought, and yet exhilarating because we know we're being united with Christ in his life and work, all as we seek to obey Christ. But that's not what's in view here with Israel. See, they've owned that they have sinned and need God to restore them, but it's taking so long. Let me just ask you, have you ever felt that about consequences of your sin? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you felt like that sin seems so quick and the consequence seems so long? I think that's often the way that sin works out. You know, that's the deception of sin is that you can quickly have eternal joy if you do this thing outside of the will of God. And the reality is you can quickly do this thing and you're going to be paying for it for a long time. There are consequences to our sin. There's forgiveness with God, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to pay consequences for our sins. And I believe this is what the people of God here in Psalm 85 have found themselves in. And and here they're asking some questions. See, they've owned that they've sinned and need God to restore them, but because it's taking so long, they're asking some questions that maybe you've asked yourself even this week, maybe this morning. Will God be angry with us forever? It feels so long, and I feel like God's never going to restore me. Or maybe you're sensing to yourself, well, my my kids have to live with the consequences of my sins, and maybe even their kids. And he's got, he gets to the heart of the issue in verse 6, where you notice he asks this, will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? See, the congregation senses that God seems to almost be done with them, and they cry out aloud to God, revive us again, O Lord. Awaken us to rejoice afresh in the God of salvation. And then verse 7 says they desperately need a display of God's steadfast love and salvation from their troubles. To help awaken them and their hearts to rejoice in their covenant keeping God. They need God to work In them so that they will be brought to life to rejoice in God as they have been made to do. God must show himself. And here Israel looks for revival in response to a rescue from human enemies and and likely a sense that God's glory and presence will never return and thrive amongst them. They're fearful of this. And so their pursuit of revival all here begins with a a confession of sin and of their desperate need of God. To come and meet with them. Now, I just want to, to say right here that this is one reason that when we gather together on Sundays, we do something that probably seems strange to people that aren't amongst us. And one of those things is that we actually always spend time in our service confessing that we are sinners before a holy God. Now, a lot of churches like don't want to talk about sin and the holiness of God, and they definitely don't want to make you feel like you are a sinner, or say that you need to confess yourself before the Lord. And yet, what I believe might be happening is we are hiding our sins and refusing to confess before the Lord is actually pushing back God, reviving his people, and bringing new life to them. See, we've got to own our sins before we can own God's grace. If we really want to understand the extent of God's love, then we need to understand how far we were for him if we're going to sense a revival. See, we can't own God's glorious mercy if we don't own the ugliness of our sin. In other words, if if you keep your sins and you try to cover them up yourself, right, with your little blankie, you don't get to see the beauty and glory of God covering your sins, burying them deep where no one will ever find them. See, it's kind of like my son Jack. We try to hide and cover up our sins and i am always reminded this when i i I play hide and go seek with jack now he's seven now he's gotten really good he wasn't good before now like he hides and like okay we're leaving we're turning the lights on and then maybe he'll come out like he's really good uh and it's mainly because used to he was not good at hiding and uh and and he would go and he would hide like under a chair but you'd see like a leg hanging out right you'd be like oh that's that's not good hiding bro you can't you're not a good hider And how how often do we think like Jack that we're really good hiders but like we're horrible at hiding. In fact, we weren't made to hide our sins. It's only God that can remove our sins and bury them and make us new and, and remove that thing that causes wrath between us and God that can actually appease his anger so that he is joyful with us again. Only God can do that. We can't hide it. We can't hide it with more good works heaping those up on the pile. We can't do it with us saying, well look, we're better than other people. We can't do it with any of those things because God is the standard. God himself must deal with the problem. We need God to bury our sins. And when we come together, the reason that we regularly sing and pray confessing our sins to God is that this does a number of things that are good for us. The first is that it lets visitors know that they are in exactly the right place amongst other sinners. Now we're saved by grace, but we are not not sinners. We are not not in need of God's grace. We need God's grace, double negative. That's the way it works. If you are here and you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, I'm here and I need to sort of say incognito with my sin because I don't want them to know that I'm a sinner because then they might not let me come back. That's not the nature of the way that we think of ourselves. See, the Bible tells us we are sinners and we need to confess. We confess when we come to Christ at first and we continue to confess our sins as we live the Christian life. We have all come here to encounter a merciful God week after week. But there's a second thing that we learn uh, through our confession. It's that Trinity Bible Church is, we are reminded that, through, that though our identity is wrapped up with Christ, and we are first and foremost Christians identifying with Jesus, we know that we still war with sin. And that even in Christ, we are still utterly dependent on Christ and his spirit every moment I mean, isn't our confession of sin a confession that we are utterly dependent on the spirit of God to save the people of God because without him, we would have no hope? That's what confession is claiming. It's claiming that we need God, that we will not be made new, that we will not be transformed short of a work of the creator God in us and through us. And confession calls this to remembrance. Uh, also, our confession glorifies our holy, merciful God who seeks to save sinners from sin and death so they can find himself and eternal life. When we confess our sins before God, who would be so bold to come before a holy God and confess their sins and not stand back and hope that he did not strike them down, if not but for the goodness and mercy of God that they were appealing to? See, every time we confess, we are proclaiming something mighty and wondrous about the character of God. He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is good, who forgives sinners. And by the way, he's not a God who just forgave sinners, he's a God who continues to be in the job of saving sinners to himself. There's a fourth thing that we see here about the nature of why we confess, it's that it promotes confidence and that what God said is true. 1 John 1, 9 promises that if we as believers confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful and just to do that. And not only that, James promises that if we draw near to God, confessing our sin, coming to him on his terms, he will draw near to us run to God, he runs to you. Flee the devil and he will flee from you. Now Israel, they understood that their hearts needed to be revived, to rejoice in God being God. I'm wondering this morning if we recognize our need to be revived, to delight in God being God. As Augustine famously said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. We need you to revive our hearts so that we can obey you as we should. Lord, you call us to rejoice in your salvation. And we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would revive us to rejoice in the God of our salvation with an earnest, palpable joy. That's what God calls us to. There's a third thing we see here, though, in verses 8 to 10 verses eight to 10, we see a third thing. That's that revival and obedience go hand in hand. Revival and obedience go hand in hand. Now here you, you see something happen in the flow of the psalm. So far it's been the congregation, and now what we find is there's this singular voice that begins to speak, almost hushing everyone else so that this person, maybe a prophet, can hear a word from the Lord. And here's what happens. Notice here he doesn't say that you are forgiven, so sin, and that's not a big deal. Go on and do what you want. No, instead he says this in verse 8. He says, let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them turn not back to folly. See, they feel like God is so far away, but here the prophet listens for a word from God, and the prophet either either hears or he anticipates hearing God speak peace or shalom to his people. To these, he calls them saints, which signals that God has buried their sins. They are his holy ones. That's what saints means. They're his holy ones. And he has turned his wrath away. Now, you might think to yourself, well, like peace, why is that such a big deal? Uh, Things just got quiet and they were loud. Like, what kind of peace are we talking about here? Well, shalom is is really actually an all-encompassing, joyful well-being that actually goes into every sphere of life. That's what the people of God longed for. Peace on every level of life. See, this envisions a peace with God that works down into every nook and cranny of their lives. Now, as we read this, I think there might actually be something going on, not just in this psalm, but in the psalms overall. In fact, Robert Cole says this, that there there might be a progression in the psalms, beginning in Psalm 73, we have this psalmist, and, and he stumbles as he sees peace, because here's what happens, peace is broken out, but the wicked are those who are enjoying it. And he's confused. He says, why is it that we have peace but the wicked are enjoying it? God is righteous, this just doesn't make sense. And then you'll find that in Psalm 81, 12 that God speaks to his people directly. But they refuse to listen to the voice of God. But take note that here in Psalm 85, 9, there is at least one man in Israel who listened to the voice of Yahweh of the covenant God of Israel. And God speaks here through him to his saints. Now, when you see that word saints, uh, it it can cause you some confusion. It's not talking about like the best NFL team ever who's probably gonna win the Super Bowl this year with Drew Brees getting MVP. Not talking about that. Uh, When it's talking about saints, it's not also talking about like super Catholic Christians who performed a miracle and get saint status like Mother Teresa. That's not what we're talking about. When the Bible talks about saints, it's actually better uh, translated holy ones. Those who are holy. Uh, They are holy because their God is holy and God makes them holy as his people. So here, this speaks of those seeking to obey God who have been claimed by God. And notice that he foresees God turning back to his people and says, "But, But let them not turn back to folly course the way of wisdom is living in the fear of the lord or faithful reverence and obedience to god and folly it it describes living independently of god so it's this kind of living that provokes god's displeasure it means going rogue spiritually like i'm going to make my own decisions i'm not going to look into god's word and seek to be obedient to him i'm not going to treat jesus as ultimate king my my desires or someone else will be my ultimate rule maker In other words, here, what they are saying is, don't let us turn back to folly. Don't turn away from us. God, please don't repent of turning to us. Don't turn back from that. And and let us not turn back from turning to you. Don't turn away from the God who just turned back to us. And as they wait, as they are waiting in verse 9, he confidently cries out this, As They wait for God's movement. He says, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Now, don't miss this. Those who fear God are near God. That's what he says. Those who fear God are near God. Now, God being near, you might not feel it palpably or experientially. But what he says here is, is, look, it might feel like God is far away to us. But we know that God is near because we are those who fear God and God draws near to those who fear him. That's the reality and maybe that's you today. You just need to be reminded of that. It feels like God is really far away. You fear him, you're seeking him, you're seeking to be faithful, not saying you're perfect but it feels like God is very far away and, it, and here I would say God is closer than you realize. And it's not your experience that indicates whether or not God is near to you. It's God's promise in his word that tells you he is very close. And these psalmists believe that those who fear God, that that means that they have a reverence for God and seek to obey his voice. God is close to them. Salvation. Salvation is coming. And this remnant of people, those of Israel who actually put their faith in God and fear him, they say this. They say that glory will dwell in our land. Uh, I think this statement is powerful for a couple of reasons. First... Uh, one commentator, Derek Kidner, he says this, he, he says that this word for dwell, God will dwell in our land, is actually a word that comes from the same root for, for Shekinah. Uh, now, I remember that word because my, my mom said that if I was a girl, she was going to call me Shekinah. So I'm glad I was a boy because um, it'd be you know, weird to be a girl named Shekinah, um, unless you are named Shekinah, that's a beautiful name. And... <laughs> Um, And it's a root that actually means the glory of God and the glory of his presence so much that it actually became a name of God. God's glory where he dwells with his people. And so here the people envision that he would dwell with them. In Psalm 78, 61, they remember how God's glory departed from the land. But here the psalmist says that God's coming home and his saints are coming with him. We're going to get back. We're going to be restored. God is going to restore all that we have lost. And second, you'll notice that in verse one, speaking to God, they just called it your land, speaking of God's land. And now they say it's our land. And so they broke into song. This land is our land, this long is your No, it, they didn't do that. But there was this idea that, wow, this, this really is God's home and our home together forever. God has restored us. See, they will experience what every heart Longs for and and do not be in any way deceived. This is what your heart longs for. You long for shalom in the home. You want peace in the most intimate levels of your life, the most intimate rooms of your life. You want peace with God. You want peace with your family. You want peace with your enemies. You want peace. You want a joyful existence that revels in God's creation, unhindered and unfettered. And yet you know that that thing that you long for so much gets pressed back on on every level. And so the peace that you want so much is the peace that is so elusive. And here, these Israelites, who have not experienced peace their whole lives, really, see a peace that is coming that is going to be glorious. Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds good for Israel. But what we know is, is that Israel actually never experienced the fullness of this kind of peace that they longed for. It never got better, never got better than the glory days of David and, and of Solomon. In fact, things got more difficult, and it was a, a history of God's people turning to him and then turning away and then turning again, and of difficulty and suffering on a national level, the people of God suffering. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, what does this mean for us, these promises of peace that is to come? This desire for revival and restoration—what what does that mean for me? Well, catch this in First Peter two nine to ten. It tells us that in Christ we have received peace with God, and we are saints. We are holy ones of God if we have put our faith in Christ and the fact that He has died and been raised again for us. Not because of a miracle that you have done. That's not why you have your saint status, but because of a miracle done to you and for you in Jesus Christ. Because of that, you have a new status. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10 says this. You once, or you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Catch this, a holy nation, you. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Gentile Christians in this church, or this area, this region. He says, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, may rejoice of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people. He says, you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, we are positionally holy by virtue of our relationship to God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are also called to live holy lives that image Jesus Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel. So being Christ-like means being more holy. Holy. And that is the life, the steps that we've been called to walk in. Now, don't miss this. Revival will be marked in part by an increase in living a holy life. Now, I know that that if you're like I was when, when you were younger, you longed to see God do exciting things and make powerful demonstrations. And at times, you felt like the Bible and the church got in the way. You felt like you would really prefer God just to do something exciting rather than you be faithful and committed and doing the hard things of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian as you, as Christian exiles, wait on the new heavens and the new earth. And what we find in the history of revival is that it is often these mighty movements, not just excited pep rallies, but mighty movements of God where God does something that's always come about by God's people obeying God's word. Praying to him, crying out to him, confessing their sins. Looking to the word and trusting that God was holy. Running from their sins and running to praise God and to be faithful and sharing Christ with others. Now you might ask yourself, well what comes first? Holiness or the revival? Revival or the holiness? Does God do something or we do something or do we do something and then God does something? You know, is it the chicken or is it the egg? See, our holiness or God's reviving his people, which is it that actually creates this movement? I would give two answers. So I would say theologically, obviously, God causes revival, it's something that God does. It's something that God does by his power and his might, through his spirit to the glory of his name, in a way that is beyond anything that human hands, human minds, human gifting can be attributed. But if you're asking me experientially, what comes first? Well, I would say both. See, God delights in drawing near near to those who draw near to God. God. And so as we see a revival happening, often it'll seem like, oh, it was spontaneous. But we don't see the many years of faithful prayer of like in Wales in 1850, where three men were just asking and begging for revival and then it broke out in ways that they could not expect. And it was because there were faithful, godly men who were asking and beseeching God on behalf of those around them. See, the Holy Spirit enlivens us towards God. God delights in drawing us near to him. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then along with this, this is part of drawing near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will bring life where there is death. It's a devilish lie that the call to obedience is legalism. See, if that's true, then Jesus is a legalist because he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And John is too, because in 2, 4 to 5, he says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him or her. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. See, I believe if a revival were to break out, we wouldn't be squishy on obedience. We wouldn't be squishy on obedience of of who we are dating or thinking about Dating. We wouldn't be squishy about uh, whether or not we should watch this or that movie. We wouldn't be squishy about whether or not we are sharing Christ. See, we do not need a, a program to evangelize the lost. If God revives our hearts, you won't be able to shut us up. 200 years ago, I I love this, one evidence of just the power of a revival, Uh, there was a man, John Elias, who was a powerful preacher, and he actually went to an annual fair that was famed for debauchery and sin. That means bad stuff. And I don't know the context, but he ends up showing up at this fair, and he begins preaching, and as he's preaching, this is what happens. They literally shut down the annual fair forever. Think about that. A festival of sin year after year, a man man comes and preaches the word of God with authority and they say, we will never do this again. Friends, that's not the normal thing that we should expect when someone preaches. That's when God shows up and does something unique, the kind of thing that we long for. God, revive us. One day God will restore us though. He will restore us. I believe what we have in verses 10 to 13 is a vision of the future meeting the present. We find that God will revive them until he restores them. Look at verses 10 to 13. This is what he says. He says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and makes his footsteps away. Now, as you read this, it, it, it's one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of the nature of what it means for God to be present amongst his people. And he has personified a number of the attributes of God, the attributes that define and characterize his kingdom and the coming Messiah who would be over his kingdom. So you'll notice that steadfast love or that covenant love is going to meet with faithfulness. That's not been the status so far. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness, you'll notice that it is springing up from the ground and righteousness is looking down from the sky. So as we see these attributes, they're all of God and what you see is the fullness of God surrounding the people of God in the place of God. God is coming and he is surrounding them with all that he is. They ask for revival and restoration, which means God with his people in peace. And here they find an image of unparalleled glory. The personification of the attributes of God joining in making much of God and his people. They are at one with God and in peace. Uh, Commentator Derek Kidner again says, The prevailing concept here is that of concord. That's what you see, concord. It is a vast, unspoilt, and rich with life image of harmony. That's what we find here. There is no friction with God. There is no sin or pushback. People are living obediently with God in joy. See, this harmony is the climax of this text. It is a hopeful future God's people hope in God again. God has helped revive them so that they hope in God and they put the hope of their future in God's hands. Now, as commentators read this, they get super confused in all kinds of ways and they confuse me. You know, some will say that this is gonna happen in the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns, but no one can deny that this will be the experience of God's people in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns and restores all things. Only then will we truly see the fullness of this kind of harmony. See, God will bring revivals amongst his people until he restores all things which climaxes in us living in peace with God forever and all of his fullness. Don't you long for that day? Man, life can be so burdensome. But boy, I can't wait for that day when God returns, his Christ, his son comes and he dwells with us forever in a land that is utterly peaceful, full of shalom, that we are peace with God and have joyful relationship with one another unhindered. What a day that's gonna be. So let us pray, asking that God would bring about revival in our day many times over until that great day when he restores all things to the shalom in the home that we long for. Let's pray together.